0: You can open your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 2, we've been in our study here at 1 Corinthians for several months and just continue to forge ahead. Um, but today I want to, we're, we're picking up in verse 6 of chapter 2 and uh, we'll do a little review here and see how far we get in the message. We've had a lot going on this morning with the communion and everything, but that's a good thing about teaching through God's Word. You just pick up where you left off last time. You don't have to, (laughs) it's no problem. Uh, You know where we're going, and I know where we're going, so we're on the same page. Amen? Well, today I want to talk about the spiritual nature of the gospel. The spiritual nature of the gospel. Last week, uh, we looked at the glory of preaching Christ crucified, and Paul talks about that in the first five verses of chapter 2. Last week we looked at Paul's message in verses 1 to 2, the content of his message, and uh, we, we said how that it was a, a message that was focused on one thing and one thing only, He wasn't focused on the culture. He wasn't focused on the wants or the desires of the people. He was focused on the gospel of Christ. He was focused on proclaiming Christ and Christ crucified. And then we saw Paul's method, the form of his message. In verses 3 and 4, he said he didn't come to them with some eloquent speech. He wasn't there to impress them. As a matter of fact, he said he came in weakness, in fear, with much trembling. We don't think of the Apostle Paul that way, but that's what he says. And I think I understand what he means. Whenever you teach the Word of God, you have to come to it with a sense of reverence. You have to come to it with a sense of fear, with a sense of awe, with a sense of trembling. And also a sense of weakness. You know, this doesn't happen on Sunday mornings, because you have an eloquent pastor. Trust me, I am not. (laughs) you got to put the cookies on the lower shelf for me. And so I try to keep them on the lower shelf for everyone else. Sometimes it's interesting, you hear certain pastors preach, and I think half of their message is giving definitions of words they use. You know, they'll use, some big, use big, some big word, and they'll say, well, what I mean by that is, and I'm thinking, why don't you just tell us what you mean, simply? You know, you don't know. But, you know, that's okay. But I'm definitely not cut of that fabric. And I think the Apostle Paul wasn't either, even though he was a lot more educated than I ever will be. Uh, he came to them simply. And then we saw, lastly, in verse 5 there, his reason for doing this, his motive he says that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. Now, we've talked a little bit about the wisdom of men and the philosophy of this world and how that is just, for the believer, something that we don't need. We have everything we need within the pages, the confines of God's holy word. And so that's where we go for counsel. That's where we go for input. That's where we go for basic instructions before leaving earth, Bible, Okay, that's why we have our Bibles. That's why we read them. That's why we study them. Because our task as Christians is to understand what the word of God means and what it, how it applies to our lives. And that's what Paul said. He said, I'm not here so your faith will rest in the wisdom of men, but in what? He says, in the power of God. In the power of God. You know, if it wasn't for the power of God, beloved, we would have nothing. We definitely wouldn't have salvation. We wouldn't be here because we wouldn't have been created. We'd have absolutely nothing. And so when you stop and you think, this is what Paul wants us to focus on. He doesn't want us to focus on his education or his eloquence as a preacher or speaker. He wants us to be focused on the power of God. You know, every Sunday before we begin our worship, I know as a worship team, our prayer, at least internally in our hearts, is really just keep us out of the way. Help us, God, not to get in your way. (laughs) Help us just to disappear in your glory. Um, I was reminded of a church that were remodeling their sanctuary, and because they were remodeling their sanctuary, the platform was all torn up and they couldn't, they had nowhere to put the worship team. And so they had to put them in the lobby of the church. And they said at first it was really weird <laughs> because you had the worship team back there in the lobby of the church and everybody's facing here looking at the words on the screen and they didn't have any, anything on the stage. It was all torn up. And after a couple months of their remodel, they got the stage done and they, they went to put the worship team back up there and they said, i don 't think we want to do that <laughs> because it 's been so easy to focus on God without looking at the people up there or, or criticizing what they 're wearing or how they 're moving or how they 're singing or you know it 's just kind of a it was a very worshipful experience for them to hear the music and hear the blessing and yet not be focused on individuals and that 's really what our worship should be focused on should it not be on christ and that 's what Paul wanted his message. To be focused on more than anything else was the glorious Christ and him crucified. Paul made clear the only hope for the eternal well-being of the human race comes from only one message. There's not many roads that lead to heaven. There's not many messages that will get you there. There's only one. Preaching Christ crucified. Um, Now, that message, as we found out in the first chapter and here even in the beginning of chapter 2, is a foolish message to those who don't believe it. They look at that and go, what? You want me to believe in a dead man that died on a cross and you say that rose from the dead? It's a foolish message to them because they can't comprehend it. But the Bible says it is the power and wisdom of God to those who believe. That's in chapter 1 that we've been through before. And so the people who receive the gospel, the people who are willing to bow their knee to Christ and embrace the Savior because they realize they can't do anything with the burden of their sin that they're carrying, they come to Christ and the Bible calls them not wise. He says they're not powerful. They're not even of noble birth, Paul says. But because they have been touched by the grace of God, they have a right to boast, not in themselves, but at the end of chapter 1 he says "Let the one who boasts, boasts in what? Boast in the Lord. I think Christians need to learn to boast a little more in the Lord, to understand what that means. It means to be bold in your faith, to a lost and dying world. When you leave these four walls and you walk outside, you're walking into a toxic society, you're walking into a society that hates Christ for the most part, especially here on the peninsula. I mean, there's a reason why they call this area the dark corridor where less than four, 3 to 4% of people go to any church, any church, any household of faith at all. And we see that every day with our neighbors and, and our friends, and we see that played out. And that all depends... That message of Christ crucified, it all depends on the wisdom of God. It doesn't depend on the wisdom of man. You're not going to figure the gospel out. You're not going to look at the gospel and go, okay, now I get it. Now it makes sense without God's enablement. You have to depend on the wisdom of God. And so what Paul does in chapter 2 here, verse 6 and following, he begins to expound on God's wisdom. He's saying this is so essential, you need it, You can't depend on human wisdom. That's foolishness to a spiritual person. But you have to depend on the the wisdom of God. And so in in verse 6, all the way down through 16, he begins to expound on the wisdom of God. Now, the Corinthians were in the process of debating wisdom. I mean, remember what this place was like. I mean, they loved to have orators stand up and talk about this and talk about that. That's what they live for. They live for philosophy. They love philosophy, the love of wisdom. But it was man's wisdom they were loving, unfortunately. And so, having discussed all that, here we see in in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 2 the provision of the cross. He describes two kinds of people here. He describes those who are the mature. And I've read a lot of commentaries this past week on this and the past several weeks on this, and some of the commentaries say, well, it's talking about mature believers and immature believers. No, it's not. Mature basically means those who are spiritual, those who are believers. It's not, Paul is not in the business here in this text of distinguishing between a mature believer and and an immature believer. That's not what he's doing here. And some people make that mistake. And so they think that somehow, Paul, you have to reach a certain maturity as a believer before you can have any godly wisdom at all. And that's not true. The Bible says if we're a believer in Christ, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness in Christ. And so he describes two kinds of persons here. He says those who are inspired By true wisdom. The mature believers, they're interested in godly wisdom. He describes two kinds of people and two kinds of wisdom. Godly wisdom and human wisdom. You have the mature, those who are believers, and then you have, he says there in verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. See, he's not saying all wisdom is bad. It's just human wisdom that's no good. Now, now, that's not to say that people who are not believers don't have any insight into life at all. You know, I take my car to a mechanic. Why? Because he's a Christian? No, because he's a good mechanic. And he's fair, and he's honest. He's probably not a Christian, to be honest with you, but I, that's not my concern. I want to reach out to him for Christ. But I'm not there to hear a sermon. I'm there so he can fix my car. See, sometimes we get so caught up in that. I remember hearing one, one Christian, he was a relatively new Christian, and he was asking about a service. I don't know if it was a plumber or whatever. And I was kind of naively said, well, just look for a Christian one. You know, They have the little fish. And he goes, you know what? I hired one of those people one time. I'll never hire another Christian to do work like that. Guy ripped me off. And he had the little fish and all that in the in the little yellow page back when they had yellow page ads. So, you know, you have to be careful. There, there is a human wisdom, but here he's talking about a human wisdom that tries to answer spiritual questions. See, it's okay if you go to a doctor and the doctor is trained and he's going to operate on you. I mean, whatever, it's nice if he's a Christian. But that's not my bottom line. If he's a skilled doctor, hey, I'm good to go. So we have to be honest here that there is a human wisdom outside of the spiritual realm, the nature of life, that some people are very good at things, and they do things in a secular way, and they're, they're very uh, adapted at, at their, their, their profession. That's okay. But see, here he's, he's talking about a spiritual insight So he says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, but it's divine wisdom, it's not human wisdom. He says, although it is not a wisdom of this age. So he gives us the wisdom of God, and then he says the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age. So in this text, Paul is talking about the mature who are believers in Christ, and then he's talking about the rulers of this age who are unbelievers, The mature are those who trust in God's wisdom, as we gain it through the Spirit and through His Word. The rulers of this age trust in human wisdom, and they get it from within themselves, or their training, or their their teaching. And so Paul says here, you know, there is a false wisdom, a human wisdom, that is really a hindrance to the gospel. It's a hindrance to the gospel. Whereas godly wisdom, divine wisdom, flows out of the gospel. And see, sometimes we get the wires crossed and, and we forget what is spiritual in nature and what is kind of secular in nature in our lives. You know, if you're going to an auto mechanic, that's, that's one thing. But if you've got problems in your marriage, you probably don't want to go to a secular counselor you may not even want to go to a Christian counselor, to be honest with you, in the sense of Christian counseling today, because Christian counseling is just secular counseling with the label Christian on it. But they take Freud and all that stuff and apply it to the situation. What is that? That's human wisdom. I would much rather you go to a biblical counselor. What's a biblical counselor? A biblical counselor doesn't rely on human wisdom. A biblical counselor relies on what? On the Word of God. So if you have problems in your marriage, you go talk to a biblical counselor. There's a couple good things. Usually they're free, <laughs> that's a good thing. Secondly, they're not there to entertain you, they're not there to make you want to come back again. You don't lay down on a couch. You sit down and you frankly talk about your problems and then the biblical counselor opens up the word of God and says, well, here's the issue. Here's what you need to do. Go do it. I'd much rather have that than laying on a couch having somebody talk to me about my childhood. So we have to be discerning in all that. And so Paul says here very clearly that there's these two sets of people. To believers, those who are called, he says Christ in verse 24 of chapter 1 is the power of God, of the wisdom of God. So that that word mature there, some translations translate it perfect or complete. But it can also refer to a person who has full membership in a group. One who's fully vetted, one who's fully initiated into the group. And here he uses this term, the mature, in the same way he uses it over in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. I should say the writer of Hebrews, because we don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews or not. Some people believe that. Some people don't. But the writer of Hebrews uses this word the same way Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians. In, in Hebrews 6.1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to what? Maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of the instructions about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. He says, hey, you need to leave that stuff and you need to kind of dig down and become mature in your faith. Or in, in chapter 10, verse 14, he says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There, it's used the same way it is in 1 Corinthians, perfected. It means to be fully vetted into the, the salvation of Christ. So those who are mature, it refers to the redeemed. It refers to those who are completely trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in his work upon the cross. He's not talking about When he's talking about God's wisdom here, he's not talking that it only applies to certain believers that have an advancement in their faith or they have super faith or whatever. He's not talking about that. He's just talking about those who are saved, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. And what his point is, is they're the only ones, true believers are the only ones who have any understanding of the gospel in a divine way. All others, Paul says in in verse uh, 23 of chapter one, he says, the gospel is a stumbling block to everybody else. They don't even understand it. And if you don't believe me, just think about it in your own life. Before you came to Christ, how many times did you hear the gospel? How many times maybe did you mock the person that was sharing the gospel with you? And then all of a sudden, what happened? God turned the switch on. God convicted you of your sin. God transformed you. God opened your spiritual eyes so you were no longer dead in your trespasses and sin, and he gave you new life. And all of a sudden, that silly message of the gospel became everything that you're going to hang your hook on for the rest of your life. You put your full trust in the gospel. It becomes the most important message that you've ever heard once your spiritual eyes are opened. We read in Ephesians 1, 8, 9... You have to understand for every Christian it says in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Christ rejectors hear the message of the gospel and they count it as foolishness but to believers it's the wisdom of God. It's what we have to put our faith and trust in. At Corinth there were some immature believers And these immature believers were carried away by these speakers who would get up with their eloquence and their sophistication. And they'd be able to influence them away from Christ. And when they looked at Paul, they thought, well, he's so direct. He's just so basic in his speech. I'd much rather hear to listen to this person. He makes me just feel warm inside. And he's good to look at got a nice smile. I was talking to someone this past week of spiritual things, and they asked me a question. They said, they were from another country, and they said, could I ask you a question? I said, sure. And she said, well, have you ever heard of Lakewood Church? I said, yeah. Why do you ask? Well, you know, my mom keeps on wanting me to go to a church and just can't seem to find a good one around here. But she keeps on sending me these messages. And I said, from Joel Osteen? She said, yeah, yeah, that's his name. She goes, he smiles all the time. I go, yeah, that's the guy. He's got really nice teeth. I go, yeah, that's him. (laughs) I said, so what do you think? She goes, you know, I've listened to three or four of his messages my mom sent me. And I could see, you know, the first one, it was kind of interesting. He seemed very well-spoken. He didn't have any notes at all. Um, But she goes, a couple odd things. You know, as I watched the service on TV, I saw him hold up his Bible and say, this is our Bible, and this is what... But then after they said the little thing, they say, he never referred to his Bible. I don't know where it went. I don't know if he put it under... I don't know where it went, she said. And so she goes, um, you know, this is interesting, um, but it seems like he just says the same thing over and over and over again. And I said, well, yeah, that's not somebody I would recommend. <laughs> you listen to, I'd probably recommend someone who teaches from the Bible, that's willing to spend time in the text of the Bible so that you can understand the goal is in our teaching that you can read the text and understand it for yourself. She said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of pastors today, they just focus on how to have a happy family or have a better job or be happy in life. I said, yeah, that's true. You know, if you don't, if you're not in the word of God, if you're not being taught the word of God, then there's going to be a void there. And so... We see here that those who are inspired by true wisdom, the, the, the sphere of this true wisdom in verse 6, he says, among the mature. That's, that's who it's for. It's for the believers. That's the only people that are going to get it. Where does this wisdom come from? The source of it? In verse 7 there, he says it's from God. It's the wisdom of God. It's not of men. So it, it's not going to make complete sense to everyone you know when you read through the book of job uh, especially you see the wisdom of men set in plain contrast to the wisdom of god you know here's job he's having all these issues in life and here's job's friends they come along and they try to convince this suffering patriarch that all this stuff going on in his life in a negative fashion is because of his sin And they go out of their way to to teach him this. Uh, Eliphaz, one of them, was a man with exotic experience. He talked about dreams and visions and spirits and all kinds of things. Bildad was a man of clever cliches. He had this little pet answer, pet proverb for every little thing. Zophar, the other individual, was the man with the made-up mind. He thought maybe he had a monopoly on God. So... Eliphaz suggested Job was a sinner. Bildad supposed that he was a sinner. Zophar said that, well, Jesus or uh, Joab, Job was a sinner. One and all agreed that Job's sufferings were a divine visitation on him for the sins in his life. You can read it for yourself. Now, Job he denied all this constantly. He didn't have any explanation for his sufferings, though. And in his final speech, as you read it in the book of Job, you can read it on your own time, he justified himself at great length. He's using the personal pronouns I, me, and my no less than 195 times. I mean, he came close to really accusing God of injustice. And on on one occasion, he challenged God to treat him with the same compassion and concern with which he had treated others. And you remember Job's wife, I mean she was no help, the one person still alive in his family and she said, "Ah, you know, commit suicide and die." I you know, what a loving wife she was. And so all their conclusions were wrong. And in the end, Job confessed that he had spoken far too much and that he had spoken of things too wonderful for me, he says in chapter 42. And indeed, he repented of his rash words as as he might, for if we cannot understand God's ways in the material and moral realm still less apart from the Holy Spirit, can we understand God's ways in the spiritual realm? And so Paul speaks of the wisdom of God. He also here speaks of the the secret of of true wisdom in verse 7. He says, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God. Secret. Hidden. The word there, mystery. Mysterion in the Greek. It denotes a, a sacred secret. Throughout the Old Testament, God used that word at different times and in different ways. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that God spoke to us, what, in different ways, in different times. But today, what does he do? The mysteries reveal he speaks through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are a number of such mysteries or secrets that are revealed in the New Testament which were concealed from God's people in the Old Testament. That's why it can't be discovered just humanly speaking. The whole plan of redemption was conceived in the mind of God long before ages. Before Lucifer raised the standard of rebellion in in heaven. And so we have a, a wisdom that is mysterious It's secret, it's hidden, until God chooses to reveal it to you. And then he says here this wisdom, the scope of this wisdom, is unto our glory there in verse 7 at the end. We know, we can understand that God does all things for whose glory? For his own glory. I mean, that's the, the basic premise of all true biblical hermeneutics, that God receives the glory, not man. God should have planned things and permitted things and pursued things onto our glory is a thought beyond all thought. We would never have dared to think it had God not said it himself. For our glory? That's what it says. And so we need to be reminded that those who are inspired by true wisdom are those who are obviously Believers. Well, the second group here, you see those who are insensitive of true wisdom. Those who are insensitive. Look at what it says in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. None of them. When you stop and you think of the message of the cross, you think of the message of Christ. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why would you crucify the Savior if you understood what was going on with the Savior? Uh, In Bethlehem, the wisdom of God was on display, clearly. The second person of the Godhead was incarnate in human flesh. He came to live on earth as a man among men while retaining and demonstrating his absolute Godhead. And yet his full glory was veiled. Why did he do all this? He did this so he could be our mediator. He could be that person that comes in and bridges the gap between God and man. Jesus Christ had to come And be incarnate in a human body simply because as we just celebrated the death of Christ this morning on the cross, the last time I checked, God cannot die. So Jesus Christ had to come and take on a human body which could die. And then it was gloriously resurrected on the third day. But when you stop and think of Christ when he was here, the princes of that day, that time, um, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and everybody that was there, they denied the evidence of the life, the teaching, the miracles of Christ matter of fact, some of the religious leaders couldn't deny his miracles because they saw him firsthand. But what did they do? They said, well, we, we don't deny that you do these miracles, Jesus, but you don't do them by the power of God. You do them by the power of Satan. I mean, how blind can you be, folks? So they conspired to get rid of him. They regarded him as a mere man, as a troublemaker, as somebody who was going to upset their apple cart. And Herod concluded that because Jesus refused to perform a miracle to satisfy his curiosity, the man was a fraud, mocked him openly. Pilate was troubled by the Lord's silences, even his answers, his behavior. And he was inclined to half believe that Jesus was more than a mere man. I mean, certainly he had never met anyone like Jesus before. But when it came to Crunch time, what happened? He signed his death warrant and had him scourged and condemned him as on the cruel death of the cross. See, none of the princes of this world knew the wisdom of God in Christ because if they did, they wouldn't have crucified him. And as they were nailing him to that tree that day, Jesus prayed for those who were carrying out his death sentence. And you remember, it's recorded in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. What does he say? For they know not what they do. They didn't get it. Nothing but the restraining hand of God held back 12 legions of angels from pouring over the battlements of heaven and ushering in Armageddon and then just right then and there. But it didn't happen. It was not until after Pentecost that Peter and the other disciples really began to understand something of the wisdom of the cross. Remember when they were with Jesus, he kept on talking about his death, and they kept on saying, we don't get it. What are you talking about? They didn't understand. Peter charged the Jewish people and their leaders with their appalling guilt. But then he saw at last a higher wisdom at work. He said in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him, listen to this, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken, and by wicked hands you have crucified and slain whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Christ hung on the cross because it was God's plan for him to hang on the cross. Remember, I think it was John MacArthur who wrote a book on the cross, and he said, who killed God's son? God killed God's son. That's a radical thing to think about. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And so we see those who are insensitive, they don't get it. And in verses 9 to 16, we'll get into this next time, but he talks about the incompleteness of man's vision, why they don't get it. And he begins to expound on the blindness of human wisdom. Um, And we'll, we'll save that. For, for next time. But I, I want to ask you this morning, have you come to a point in your life where you've realized that, you know what, your human wisdom has taken you about as far as it can take you? And at that, it's probably not very far. At some point in your life, just at some point in all of our lives, we have to come to a time, to a day, where we realized that, you know what, my salvation is out of my grasp. I can't do it. Trust me, I was born and raised in the Catholic church and was there for 19 years of my life. I was an altar boy, went to mass every week several times, did everything they told me I was supposed to do. And in the end, I realized this isn't cutting it. I saw hypocrisy, I saw religious failures, I saw the futile attempt to try to reach out and do more so God could love you and somehow you could partake of His grace if you just went to another mass or if you just said another our Father or a Hail Mary, Hail Mary. You know, it's so important that we realize that the Bible doesn't teach that's the way of salvation. It's not the way of salvation. The Bible says it's by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of works. Not works in this church, not works in the Catholic church, not works in any church. See, if you're trusting in your good works to get you to heaven, you're sorely mistaken because it's not going to work. In the end, you're going to stand before a holy God with your little bucket of works, and he's going to say, Okay, that's great, but what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? Did you come to the cross? Did you bow your knee? To my son. Because he's the only chance for you to enter into my presence up here. If you don't got that ticket, you're not getting in. It's that simple. And I know that that's a very exclusive message. Sometimes that's a very hard message for people to hear. But it's Jesus himself who said it. Think of John 14, 6. What did he say? I am the, the way not one of the ways. He says, "I am the way." This is Jesus Himself taught this. I am the truth. I am the life. No man, no one. no matter how religious you are. You don't come to the Father except through me. He is our mediator. He is our Savior. See, that's the divine wisdom that God wants us to understand. And granted, it doesn't make sense logically in our mind. It doesn't make sense in our society's mind for sure. If you don't believe me, just go out and try to share that exclusive gospel. That there's only one way to the Father in heaven, and that's through his Son. You'll have people calling you all kinds of names. But that's what the Word of God says. And so we need to put our faith and trust in that. Father, we thank you for our word this morning Thank you that the Apostle Paul speaks to our hearts in in ways that only he can through the power of your Spirit. Lord, we know there's some good things that people do in this, this age, this world we live in, that are in this secular nature, whether it's working on our cars or our houses or whatever, but we need to separate that from spiritual things, because that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about getting spiritual input, and the only place that authentic realistic life changing wisdom comes from is from you from God it has to be divine and because it's divine the unnatural man the unspiritual man can't discern it they can't understand it and so maybe you're here this morning and this message has just been a bunch of blah 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 maybe you don't get it that's okay I would ask that you would really turn your heart to God and ask Him to give you spiritual eyes, to open your heart to spiritual things, to remove the blinders from your eyes, so that the message that seems foolish to you now might become a very cherished message to you when He opens your eyes and you realize that it's in Christ and Christ alone you put your faith, your trust. What a glorious thing it is to come to the cross and bow your knee in humbleness and humility and admit your need to be saved from the pool of sin that surrounds us, from the mire and the muck that we can't seem to get out of, from the stains that are just driven into every part of who we are. It's only through Christ In Christ alone that we can have our sins, our stains, that mire, that muck, that pool of sin washed away. That we could be free. Free in Christ to do what honors you. Free in Christ to give you glory. Free in Christ to give up our religious works. And to trust in your son's work on the cross. The only work that will save. If there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray today might be the day they cry out to you, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. We can all admit that. We all do things that are dishonoring to God at times. And we need forgiveness. And the only place we can go is to Christ. If you're here this morning and you want to Cry out to the Lord, you just do that in the quietness of your own heart. Lord, there's a prayer in the New Testament that's a very biblical prayer. It's a simple prayer, a couple words. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. In that one prayer, you're acknowledging your, your sin, you're acknowledging your need to be saved, and you're acknowledging the Savior. When that's prayed from a sincere heart, he will save you, he will transform you, he will change you into a new creation in Christ and your spiritual eyes will be opened maybe for the first time and you'll realize that you've been reconciled to your God and your creator through his son as believers I pray that we'll take this message out of these four walls and live it and speak it boldly for your glory Father we thank you for this morning thank you for our time together at the communion table and our fellowship And we just ask your blessing upon us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.